Hello everyone, this is Nishant Malhotra, sole founder of the Middle Road, global thought leader platform, enabling social change and impact, specifically within the media and e-learning section. It's focused a lot on sustainable development sector. Today, I'm very glad to introduce Mr. Alfredo Quarto, Program and Policy Director and Co-Founder of Mangrove Action Project, a thought leader US-based nonprofit enabling social change and impact by conserving and restoring our world's mangrove forests. There's also a piece on this which I've published and there'll be much more material coming on this topic. Mr. Wilfredo, welcome to the platform. Thank you. Good to be here. Mangroves are critical pillars of our Mother Earth's ecosystem, preserving the biodiversity, storing more carbon than any other forest type per hectare, providing a sustainable livelihood for coastal communities and a bulwark against storms. When we are, uh, when we first talk, I want to first congratulate you for your fantastic work in preserving mangroves globally. You're one of the biggest initiatives in, in this space and also I feel in biodiversity. Now, how did this idea about preserving and nurturing mangroves and coastal habitats originate? Well, I was traveling in Thailand at the time and met a man named Ian Baird who worked with Earth Island Institute. And I was going to do a photojournalism uh, story on an environmental issue. He said, do you know about the mangroves and uh, shrimp farming? And so I said, no, I don't know anything about that. And I didn't really understand what it was about. But he took me down to Southern Thailand and the Andaman Sea and showed me the shrimp farms and the mangroves that were being cut down for shrimp farming. And he said, the people here are really suffering because they're losing their mangrove forest. He said, it's very important for the local people. The communities depend on fishing, depend on the mangroves for, you know, for medicines and for wood and so on. So it was really important for the people living in the coast to have mangroves healthy and preserved. But they're being cut down really rapidly by shrimp farm expansions. And I'm not sure if you know about shrimp aquaculture, but it's a very big industry worldwide. You know, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. At that time, in 1992, when we first started, I didn't know anything about mangroves, but I learned very quickly about the importance of mangroves to the local people and the problem of shrimp farm developing. So we decided to form a network, a global network to address the problem because the similar issues were happening in Malaysia, India, other parts of the world, Bangladesh and so on. And then also in Latin America and even in Africa. So we realized that global network, network was needed to try to address this. And we started forming Mangrove Action Project in 1992, almost 30 years ago. But, but there's something extraordinary which you're doing. You know, your model, you're ed- educating coastal communities on many aspects of mangroves. Pretty significantly, one of them is positive externality. You're trying to, you know, see a lot of benefits coming out in terms of beehive, you, which helps in processing honey and honey-based products. Now, do talk about a splendid work. You talked about Thailand, you talked about Sri Lanka and other countries, specifically through the community-based ecological mangrove restoration technique. That is something how you're, you're building the community. It's more of a community-based building model to the CBEMR. How does it work? Well, we found that most restoration projects around the world were failing. They were failing because of lack of understanding of the ecology of the mangroves. And most people in the communities who were basically hired or volunteered to do planting by hand, we call it gardening, mangroves, we're, we're not aware that their efforts were gonna fail. But if you go back to the same places that were planted by hand in neat rows, in mud flats, or even seagrass beds and other places that were not suitable 
the local people were being disappointed grandly because they could not see any success. A lot of the mangroves they planted died. So we wanted to try to come up with a method that would work in restoring the mangroves successfully. And we came up with a community-managed basic project called CBEMR, which is Community-Based Ecological Mangrove Restoration. And that means using the ecology of the mangroves to help restore the mangroves, using the natural process of restoration rather than planting by hand, which did not work. What we do is we restore the hydrology and the terrain so the mangroves can come back on their own with seedlings that float on the water from the tides and come in and plant themselves. And you have more biodiversity this way. Most of the plantings done by hand or plantation type of plantings, it's only one variety of mangrove that's planted. And that one variety is usually the rhizophora or the red mangrove. Only that one, because it's more easy to plant the, what's called the propagals or the seedlings in the ground. But the problem is the ease of planting was not working. And so 75 to 80% of the attempts worldwide were failing. And we saw this as a real waste of time and effort and also opportunity because we really need the mangroves again to be restored and conserved properly if we're gonna help fight climate change for one. So that's why we, we try to endorse that method and promote this as a best practices method of mangrove restoration. You'll uh, maybe go a bit deep in neurology technology, which you talked about. Sure. I do you think it's so important. Uh, I know it makes the coastal line very even. And anything more than that particular advantage? Well, for one thing, mangroves grow in mangrove zones. They're in a special zone. They don't grow in mudflats. Mudflats is a whole other ecosystem. So the hydrology of the mangrove is very important. They need fresh water as much as they need the brackish water from the ocean. So mangroves cannot live in salt water alone. If it's just pure seawater, they'll die. It's too saline. But they can handle brackish water, which is part fresh water and part seawater. And they mix the two together to form brackish water. And they need the nutrients also come from upland as well. So a lot of times the developments that happen upland, like shrimp farms or highways or hotels, block the fresh waterway. And sometimes dams or other people using for irrigation take away the fresh water. So the mangroves do not do very well if they don't have the freshwater connection. They really need that to survive. They can handle some salt. They can handle up to a certain amount of percentage of salt, but they can't handle pure seawater. They'll die. And so I've seen worldwide problems of people trying to plant mangroves in a, a too low of zone. It's too low into the ocean where the tide comes up and they'll drown the mangroves or the tides are too strong and they'll take the mangrove seedlings away and they'll be washed away. So we've seen this happen time and again, and we're trying to say we have to restore the hydrology, which is the upstream freshwater connections, as well as the incoming tidal connections, if you're gonna have a successful mangrove restoration. It's not like upland where you can plant a tree, like an apple tree or a, a pine tree or whatever upland. It won't work uh, for mangroves because mangroves need certain conditions. They're more complex. And most people that do mangrove plantings are foresters who have learned upland, mang upland forestry. They've learned how to plant forest upland. They usually plant a dug fir, for instance, in the U.S. or in uh, some other country, a, a eucalyptus, say. But those trees are introduced and they're not natural. But to try to restore the natural ecosystem is what we're trying to do with mangroves as well. And it's very important for the biodiversity depends on a diverse mangrove forest, not just one type of tree. And that's the problem. And we see this worldwide, this problem comes up and uh, over and over again. The people trying to plant one mangrove only, the rhizophora, or the red mangroves, and that's not a good way to go.
when when you you know implemented all these initiatives there must have been a resistance because you were trying to change the whole mindset of the people around now what sort of resistance and how did you make that turn into acceptance among the communities focusing on and the long term benefits like what but externalities and dehives and doing honey products it, it takes a bit of time and a lot of convincing to do sure. one could be like you know increasing their income that would be giving alternative sources of livelihood so those would be the initiatives which go in depth of how measures you take the local people have to understand that they can manage the mangrove because it's in their area they're there all the time they're right there in the mangrove areas government officials will come and visit the mangrove area but they don't live there Oftentimes local communities know more about the mangroves than we do. They 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 live with the mangroves all their lives, so they know what they need to do to preserve their mangroves, conserve them. And they can see the benefits directly in more fish to catch, more fuel wood and medicines to get from the mangroves, more like honey collection can happen in the mangrove areas. The more healthy the mangrove is, the more honey they get. The more uh, fish they get. So the benefits for the local people are really uh, obvious. And when they see they can manage it and have some control over those resources through say a 10 uh resource tenure they can actually see the benefits of their managing it sustainably one of the problems we have in the world today is most local communities don't have access to the management responsibilities or management um um you know what do you call it the um, not the uh privileges they're not given the privilege to manage their mangroves they're not given that responsibility by the government oftentimes it's in the government hands only and the government has professional foresters or others that come in and lease the land from the government so that lack of control of their own resources is one of the problems that local communities face and it's one of the reasons also also for local communities when they lose that ability to manage their own resource they also lose the incentive to manage it and oftentimes they'll cut the mangroves themselves and unsustainably manage the mangroves because for them it's better to get the profits now than to see their neighbor get it or some stranger coming in and taking the benefits of the mangroves. So that competition with the outside world is what's causing oftentimes the local communities not to properly manage their resource. We're trying to hope hopefully get them that management um privilege and that that management skill that they can then use to conserve and manage over the long term. And honey collecting is one thing they can do. We've done that successfully in Thailand for instance in Nanang uh, province of Nanang villages you'd say they've actually produced a lot of honey. from the mangroves they're teaching other communities around them about honey production and so the honey bees of the mangrove areas are prolific prolific in making a really nice honey they can they can sell it to the local hotels or they can sell it in the villages and so on and so they make a profit that way and it's a good it's a good alternative uh, industry for them there are other industries as well like raising uh, oysters or mussels and things with the mangroves you can raise shellfish for instance or even some fish in the mangrove areas small scale they can make you know a profit basically a partial livelihood that way but then the fishermen when they go to sea get more fish closer to home they have to they have to go further to sea when there's no mangroves around which is more dangerous for them the more distance you go from the coast the more time you spend away from your family and the more dangerous of storms and so on so it's really to the benefit of the local community to have the mangroves and as well they protect against tsunamis and hurricanes and surges wave surges surges basically storm surges which is a big problem for the local communities these days even more so because of the climate change. And did you see any differences between different countries what was some of the things might be just very uniform and some of them could be a bit different? Do you see differences? 
Well, there's some differences between countries for sure, cultures and so on. But overall, the issues kind of the same because people live in the mangrove areas, benefit from them. And one of the big problems worldwide we see is the government uh, not allowing the local communities the uh, access to the rights to manage their own resources sustainably. And oftentimes the um, community management process, which is age old, oftentimes thousands of years old, these communities have been in those areas managing their resource. When that right is taken away from them and given to someone else, like a government official or a a private uh, landowner who leases the land, oftentimes the local community loses the ability to manage it and they, uh, they don't manage it properly too. So we really need to see that as a common problem worldwide, that we need to work with local communities to help them develop their management skills and also have the rights to manage. That's really have the right to manage. See a lot of, did you do an impact analysis to see how, you know, all the management practices which you're imparting, how is it going, you know, within the different countries? How's been the perception and how's been the effect? Well, it's an uphill battle, you know, trying to, for one, convince the government that owns the land oftentimes to let us do this. And the community has to be empowered oftentimes because they don't have the power to do this. So oftentimes they'll try to uh, do something that's taken away from them. You know, the government will send in somebody to say, you're not doing this right. And basically we have to give the government and the local community to work together. We have to get them to work together and to understand that the, the, base, the best management practices are with that kind of co-cooperation, not just one side only, but when the government allows the community and the community allows the government to work with them in a process long standing and will we'll, you know, go into the future properly. I think that's that's very important. True, yeah. That's maybe over a, period, a long period of time. Not only that's very helpful, but there could be a lot of distrust which goes off. And that's what's very important when they work together and see what are the limitations and what are the positives you're coming and the outcome is really positive. Climate change as the you know, central global agenda among all the actors within the sustainable development sector. Do you think the future of mangroves will work out within because the euro taximony which is coming out too has very specifically going to be including from what i know biodiversity now it's going to become a major theme within the climate change and what do you think it's going to be repercussions worldwide there'll be a lot of i think a lot of equity more a lot of investments coming in in from a lot of ASG sectors or it could become much more mainstream than what it is sure when we first started in 1982, I want to mention this uh, kind of interesting fact. Mangroves were oftentimes called wastelands. We are called useless wastelands. And so governments would encourage people to shrimp farm or build hotels. In Ecuador, actually, you had land taken away from you if you did not turn it into a shrimp farm or other money-making process. So mangroves were not valued very high. I think it was worth about $740 per hectare in mangrove use, where shrimp farming is worth $2,000-some per hectare. So shrimp farming is worth a lot more at that time, but now mangroves are worth $30,000 to $100,000 per hectare because of the climate change issues, because of sea level rise, uh, damage from hurricanes and so on. They, they now see mangroves as really valuable. And so mangroves have taken on a new whole um, issue that people weren't aware of before, which is really encouraging to see finally. But it took a long time to get there. You know, the evaluation of mangroves was so low for many, many years. It was very hard to convince governments or industries to not destroy the mangroves. But today with climate change, we see things like carbon credit schemes you know, to help come up with valuation of the mangrove. Also, there's a lot more efforts now to recognize mangroves as a living buffer against tsunamis or 
hurricanes, against erosion, which is happening because of climate change and sea level rise. And uh, the increasing frequency of storms and their intensity is really causing a lot of people to look at mangroves now as a really important uh, factor to uh, in include now in any management plan for the coast. So I think these things are coming together now and convincing a lot more people, including governments and industries that we need to protect the mangroves and restore them. We're seeing a lot more positive energy. And also when I first started in 1982, no one knew about what mangroves were even hardly. They were very unknown. Most, most of the world did not know them unless you lived in the mangrove areas. So we really have found it very difficult to convince people to save the mangroves because we first had to describe what they were. And that was very hard. Most people did not know what they were. They just thought, well, these mangroves are, they call them mangoes sometimes. I thought I was saving the mangoes. That's <laughs> pretty strange. I said, I'm not saving mango. I like mangoes, but I'm not saving them. But the mangroves were really unknown to many people. And so they were looked at as a nuisance. They were looked at as a muddy swampland, mosquito infested. And all these interesting facts come with uh, a knowledge of what mangroves really are and how important they are. They're a wetland, they're coastal forests, but they also produce a lot of other uh, benefits and a huge number of uh, resources are in the mangrove areas that we need to protect, including the biodiversity, which we really want to protect too. And then with sea level rise, mangroves play a very important part now with uh, protecting against the problems of sea level because it's eroding a lot of coastlines. And some of the island countries, unfortunately, are, are going to go under water if they don't have uh, a slowdown in the sea level rise. This is very unfortunate. There'll be a huge number of what we call ecological mangrove, ecological refugees mm -hmm. in the future if we don't do something about the climate change issues. It's really important to understand this. Millions of people will be displaced. Some of them have nowhere at home to go. So they'll have to be actually moving to other countries to survive because their uh, islands will be underwater. This is a sad fact. And we, we cannot hope to stop this uh, if we don't do anything about the climate change and the production of uh, fossil fuels and pollutants. This is very important. It's very discouraging for me as an environmentalist to see how much knowledge there is today. And yet we're still reluctant to act you know, in a manner that's effective to stop climate change or to slow it down at least. They're still talking even today about a 2.7 degrees Celsius rise in temperature by uh, the end of the century, I guess, which is going to be way beyond what the limits are for controlling climate change, way beyond. So we're, we're have heavily invested in uh, earning money today, but losing our future tomorrow, losing it for the future generations who will suffer the consequences of our Inertia, you know, or, or basically I look at it as foolishness. There's no other way around it. Very short-sightedness. Talked about Ecuador. Latin America is like one of the most beautiful, very picturesque. Do you think a lot of work is now being done? I think something was being done in countries, uh, other countries also. There's actually an uptake in protecting. I heard like there's a huge, you know, there's, there's this huge drive to save Amazon rainforest. So things are happening around the world. I mean, there's a huge awareness. You feel there's a lot of positivity coming in? Yes, there's more people aware, like the Amazon rainforest, for instance, but we're still losing it. We're still losing mm -hmm. the Amazon rainforest today. They're still setting it afire. Indonesia, Indonesia is still burning its, uh, its mangrove and other forests there to make production for palm oil. Uh, palm oil is so important today. It's not really important. We could do without palm oil, but the industry is making money for a few people to make money and they're, they're willing to destroy the planet we live on in order to make that money. It's really sad. I mean, 
how can we survive on money if we have no food to eat, no water to drink, and no uh, future to uh, really look forward to? The very air we breathe is becoming contaminated. The very water we drink is full of plastic now. It's just insane. You know, we're, we're starting to see more and more evidence that we're destroying our own planet, our own living system. And you have people like Elon Musk who wants to fly to Mars to settle there. You know, we're leaving the planet that's healthy and biodiverse to go to a dead planet, Mars, and settle on Mars. And Elon Musk could spend billions of dollars if he wanted to to help climate change issues if he wanted to save the planet we live on. Instead, he's spending billions of dollars to go to outer space, which I personally am, you know, I'm a personal involvement in that issue because I was an aerospace engineer in my past life. <laughs> you know, basically, I worked for Boeing for about three and a half years. And I studied aeronautical and astronautical engineering. But I realized as I got out of school, it was not making the earth a better place. And a lot of problems exist. I figured I better become an environmentalist and uh, in a sense, environmental engineer in a way, trying to help save the planet. And that's what we have to do today. More people need to get involved in this effort. You know, we, we know that uh, someone like Greta Thunberg in uh, Sweden is doing great work as a young person, but the younger generation is facing a terrible future. And I have two children and I worry about them and worry about their future. And this is something I try to talk to them about, but I know that we need to act today if they're gonna have a future tomorrow. This is very important to us to uh, understand. Sweden, Nordic countries are doing fantastic. You know, even France is taking leadership, Switzerland. I mean, Europe is deeply involved. They're trying to do work out. I think a lot of other countries also, you know, China is also doing a lot of things. It's whatever it can, it's doing it. India's got some of the targets coming in. So I think there's a global, I was reading even Mexico, a lot of money is coming into, you know, this particular sector. So that there's an awareness and you're right, we, we need to work a lot more harder and yeah, we need to save this planet going forward. I think that come to your vision and it's good you talked about engineering, which I was actually supposed to ask you. Now, building on that question, you, you talked about Twitter, but how's the transition, which you say, um, the space industry, which you are into the uh, nature, you know, you're coming out with, I will say nature-based solutions. And how has been that journey, which you like to people to know? Yeah, well, you know, I studied engineering, and one of the things engineers are supposed to do is work with science to help come up with solutions to problems. And in a sense, I'm doing that now with the environmental work I do. And we've come up with a solution, which is called the community-based ecological mangrove restoration, as a solution to the problem of mangrove loss and restoration. And rather than see continuing failures of restoration, we're encouraging other people to get involved in our CBMR as a, what we call a best practice approach. And that involves an ecological approach. It involves working with nature, not against nature. It involves also respecting nature because you have to understand nature has done things for millions of years, billions of years actually, to try to create what we have today in life. And in a short time, people are trying to come up with their own solutions that they developed, developed after 10 years or five years, solutions to try to make nature work with their solutions rather than try to make our solutions work with nature. So we really need to change our focus on this planet and learn to live with the planet. You know, Native people here in the US, Native Americans, Native people all over the world have a stronger connection to nature and to the basic natural facts of life than we have in the modern society. We've lost that connection. We have our computers, we have our cell phones. People are, are not connected today to the very ground they walk on, the very air they breathe, the food they eat. We need to reconnect again. That's one thing we have to learn to do. I heard when COVID happened, one of the first things that happened is people stopped driving. 
And uh, a lot of people were not going anywhere because of lack of travel, you know. So less airplanes, less automobile travel. And the skies cleared in places that hadn't seen stars for years. People saw the stars. What kind of system do we have where we can't even look at the sky? I live in the country and I live in in a farm here. So I see the stars every night very clearly. But if you're living in the city, oftentimes the lights of the city or the pollution is so strong, you won't see those stars. We need to reconnect to be able to see the stars, feel the planet's warm air, cold air, water flow, rainfall. We need to reconnect with everything we have and take it not for granted. We cannot take for granted that we always have these things. We will not have them if we don't take care of them. And one of the things people have to understand, we're not here to own the planet. We're here to steward the planet. And a steward is different than an owner. That's very important. You can own a house, you can own a piece of land possibly, you're supposed to steward that place and leave it for other generations to follow. And so we're not doing a very good job of that right now. Maybe we never have, but I think we need to learn how to do that if we're going to survive. You're absolutely right. It's we have for years. If you look at the uh, the evolution of humans from Homo sapiens, which is what predominantly we are, we have all our thousands and millions of years we've lived with nature, and with nature gone, we are. That's why encountering so many problems, and it is you know so much ingrained within us. We don't understand that we cannot exist without nature. And that's what, I've, whenever I've thought about it, and I read, started reading about the evolution of hum, humans, that's when I realized that how important this particular subject is. I was in uh, Maldives recently, uh, two years ago, and uh, before the COVID happened. <laughs> and I remember saying it at a conference, to this, you know, I was giving a presentation, and I said, off the top of my head, I just came up with this idea that human nature needs nature. And the person who was translating for me, Ume, turned to me and said, that's really a great quote. And I, I didn't think about it. I said, you know, it's very simple. It's very matter of fact. But human nature needs nature. And I said the same quote to the Washington Post newspaper here in the U.S. And they quoted me on that. And it was in the newspaper. And I thought it's kind of interesting. That obviously is a good quote. So yeah. I think human nature needs nature. We need to think about that. We're too distant. And Elon Musk and his friends are all going off to outer space and leaving their connections to the planet behind. I don't mind... Space exploration, I think it'd be wonderful to explore space, but not to leave where you're from behind, not to cut off your ties to the planet you're born on, to the Mother Earth. And that's something we need to understand. Mother Earth is always here for us if we take care of it. But if we don't take care of it, it's not going to take care of us. We're going to lose the uh, connection and we're going to be lost as well. And uh, there's a lot of startling facts today about nature. For instance, I heard something of 95 percent of mammals on the earth are humans or their pets and agriculture stock. Mm. That's strange. 95% of the mammals are cows, pigs, horses, and so on, and uh, people, and dogs and cats and so on. But that's only about 5% are wild animals, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. We've really taken over the planet in a way that's huge influence, and it's now called the Anthropocene for that reason. We're entering a new era in a sense, and Anthropocene means this people dominated, we're affecting the whole planet in a people dominated way. We need to realize that and then do something about that to make sure we don't misuse our power, misuse our influence on the planet, and to start reconnecting to realize to stay healthy as a, as a civilization, we need to have those connections with the planet we live on. Because we're not going to go very far with our moving so rapidly ahead, but losing so much behind. We're not going to survive very long. That's important. It's like a life and death struggle in a way. 
Well, if you see, uh, uh, you know, you came out with a very wonderful effect. If uh, I read *Sapiens*, wherever the uh, humans, uh, you know, *Sapiens* went, they actually finished. Rightly mentioned, the majority of the animals, or you know, what was in the nature, disappeared over a period of time. Uh, yeah. This is something we, if the past could tell us a truth, is like how we could handle the future. The quote, you know, human nature needs nature. Without uh, just to build on this, this is a very good quote. because this is absolute truth i was watching a documentary wherein you know somebody who had suffered from chronic depression and he said that when they the therapy which worked is when they went to you know did gardening together when when they held the mother earth that sort of brought in them with the nature and i think that is one of the main reasons why we have so many problems today is that we have just gone yeah, away from yeah. the nature i agree i think that distance from our natural surroundings and That's why the work we do is so important. I think because we work with nature, we try to work with it, work with local communities who are more traditional because they have more connection with nature. But they're all losing that too. If we don't act soon, uh, people will not have any connection to nature because they'll be living in cities all the time or living away from nature, destroying nature. And we have to really support indigenous peoples and struggles of the local communities to survive where they are and, and keep their lifestyle going. You know, when I think about Poor fishermen in Thailand or poor fishermen in other parts of the world, we think of them as poor, but in a sense they're very rich. They have a rich community. They have rich uh, social life. In a sense, traditions are rich. They can pass down to the future generations wisdom of knowledge, how to survive in nature, how to survive on the planet. And oftentimes, we in the modern cities, we don't pass down much to our families. You know, we we live so modern uh, computers. We have we have uh, televisions and so on. But what do we pass on to future generations to survive on the planet? What skills do they have? But I think the skills that we're losing from the traditional people and the people living uh, in the villages is very important to you know, continue keeping that and respecting that. That's something I think people don't realize we're losing that biodiversity of skills. It's in a sense of biodiversity of living uh, conditions that help people to serve people to be closer to uh, where they live. That's important to try to get back. Uh, the original languages are being lost. We're losing so much as we move forward in this tremendous wave, in a sense, a tsunami of uh, modern development. We're moving so fast that we're unable to hold on to and, and bring with us some of the very important things that we had in the past. We we don't want to lose some certain things. We do not want to lose. We want to hold on to those and bring them forward with us. And that will make us better people in the future. I think. When you talk about maps, uh, CPMR program is so important in ensuring a more effective approach to grove restoration, avoiding the serious, you know, failures of past uh, tree plantation methods. Is there something very unique in this, which which is so? You spoke about in depth about this, but there is something also which is which very unique that makes it much more attractive as compared to us, much more effective as compared to other techniques. Well, for one thing, we work with a more biodiverse restoration process because it's ecologically restoring the mangroves in a fashion that the mangroves can survive better. Now, mangroves in, say, India or Bangladesh or Vietnam might be 30 to 40 varieties of mangroves, but they're planting only one variety in most of these plantation efforts, which means 30 or 40 varieties are not being planted and they're not coming back. We're losing that biodiversity. And oftentimes they plant them in neat rows, 
They plant them in mudflats. The mudflats themselves are an ecosystem that are important as well. A lot of birds feed in the mudflats, a lot of shellfish use the mudflats. They're very important, but we're losing those to planting mangroves and mangroves don't belong there. Mudflats are too low in the water uh, level. They lower tide. So when a tide comes in, the, the mangroves and the mudflats are underwater too long and mangroves breathe through the roots. I don't know if you know that, but the root system of the mangroves are breathing above water or when the tide goes out, they can breathe again. They hold their breath when the tide is up. In a sense, when the tide is high, the mangroves are kind of said holding their breath, but they depend on the water to go out. So planting them in mud flats and even planting them in seagrasses, which is really crazy, is happening today and they're failing. So we decided CBMR is a good approach because we work with nature, work with the natural ecology of mangroves, and we understand that ecology more. We teach classes on this, uh, Dominic Woodhouse and Jim Enright in Thailand and Philippines. They teach classes on mangrove restoration to people all around the world. And they oftentimes will show them pictures of failed mangrove plantations and failed mangrove plantings and say, why does this fail? So the people looking at that picture, they understand better. And they'll take them out to the mangroves in person when we could travel before and take them and show them different things about the mangroves and failures and successes. And then the people will learn better. So we need to have that kind of contact with those who are involved in this to try to get them away from the old way of doing things, which is not a good way to do it the right way. And again, working with nature seems to be the right way. So that's what CBMR is unique in that fashion. It's less costly too, it's less, less um, cost to this. And it's more long-term. Oftentimes the planting by hand may work for a short time, but mangroves that restore themselves naturally are more likely to uh, survive changes in weather, changes in uh, wave action and so on, more resilient. That's the problem. We want to build in resiliency into our systems. That's very important. Whatever you're doing in life, be more resilient, have more chance to move with the, with the things that change in your life. And we need to do that for the mangroves too. So if you have only a monogamous, uh, um, one type of monoculture uh, forest, that doesn't work very well for this changes in weather, it changes in salinity, and that can change the uh, success of your uh, monoculture. It will die off if it's too saline or too dry and so on. Whereas a more diverse forest will survive. Some of those trees will survive and they'll, they'll modify their conditions to survive. But if you have one tree only, it's just like putting all of your eggs in one basket. I think over a period of nature, natural selection, you know much better, which is more adaptable to survive. That also exactly. is a huge factor which should come in. Now, before I come into your vision, I want you to also, you know, you talked about there is a way you can quantify the benefits of mangroves, you know, productizing, or there are some sort of carbon positives which you spoke about. Could you just would like to elaborate a bit on this? What sort of methodology or what sort of analysis goes into this particular technique? Well, for years, people knew that when mangroves were healthy, there'd be more fish. So the local people catch fish. There's more uh, protection against storms. We see that evident in the past. So the valuation of those kinds of uh, benefits was never very high. It was very low until the tsunami hit. After the tsunami hit, Mangroves went from $700 or so an hectare to $30,000 a hectare because of the value of protecting the coast and the billions of dollars and millions of dollars lost to destruction from these waves or winds and so on. So people started realizing, wait a minute, this mangrove is very important. To give you a funny example of the importance of mangroves, in Vietnam, when I visited, 
the coast, the coast area, they had shrimp farms built. They tore down their mangroves and they built a seawall to protect the shrimp farms from the storms. But the seawall kept breaking down. The waves came over and crashed and the seawall was cracking. And so they decided to plant mangroves in front of the seawall to protect the seawall and protect the farms. I saw that also in Malaysia, in Penang. They built a seawall in Malaysia. And again, the mangroves were put in front of the seawall to protect the seawall after tearing down their mangroves. So why are people learning so hard? The lessons shouldn't be that hard to learn. Mangroves are a living buffer. They're resilient. They can bend with the waves and the wind. They Actually, a, a, I think a half kilometer width of mangroves can reduce a wave by about 80 to 90%. The strength of that wave will be reduced by that kind of distance the mangroves can serve as a buffer. And this is important to understand. The seawalls, the concrete buffers are not working very well. They break down after time. And so we have to keep replacing them and rebuilding them. But a mangrove can just be planted once into a healthy mangrove and keep it alive. It'll protect the coastlines. So this is some of the benefits we can see. And uh, quantification of these benefits, like I say, over the years, from 1992 to now, there's a huge difference in the valuation of, of mangrove from that time till now. And it's scientists who have been studying this for many years who've been involved in evaluation. And they always struggled in the past trying to show that the importance of mangroves for buffers or for other factors for people locally and so on. They tried to show that, but they could never get a good quantity of dollars to show this is worth that much. But in many ways, mangroves are worth much more than the dollars can ever be uh, able to, to attribute. I mean, loss of life, how do you value that? Loss of uh, cultures, loss of safety from a potential for future hurricanes and so on. How do you value that? It's just important to keep them there. It's again, losing touch with our earth, you know, losing touch with your roots. In a sense, that's the kind of uniqueness about mangroves for me. It's like the mangroves are the roots of the sea. I met a fisherman in Thailand who actually inspired MAP to form in the first place. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but mangroves were actually unknown to me. And during my writing career as a photojournalist, which is very short, I uh, had a quote from the fisherman because he was talking to my friend Ian and Ian was taking uh, translating for me and I was taking notes for my article. And I turned it in because the fisherman, his voice changed as he uh, got really emotional and all of a sudden from a very mon mon monologue type of talking about the importance of fish for the local village. And he was the headman of the village in uh, Thailand. And so he's talking about this uh, kind of kind of monologue, not monologue, monotone voice, monotone voice, you know. But all of a sudden it went up in, in uh, height and strength, real passionate. I said, what did he say? Whatever he said seems very important. And Ian said, this is what he said. He said, if we have no mangroves, the sea will have no meaning. It's like having a tree without roots for the mangroves are the roots of the sea. Now I've used that quote over the years, it inspired me to form MAP with Ian and Pacific Trustoff from time and the three of us formed it. But that was the inspiration for me to get involved there. Because when he said that, I realized I have to get back to my activism. And I, I wrote articles about mangroves from then on. So I became an activist and formed MAP at that point with Ian and Pacific. And so the three of us, but the thing is that quote was so powerful to me because what he said means so much. And I think that's important for us to understand the local people do know the importance of mangroves. They do know the importance of the planet we live on. We need to support that and support the traditional and indigenous people for those reasons, because they have a lot to offer us as far as knowledge and uh, connection to the planet. Yeah, that's very poignant, very very intense. I mean, you cannot quantify it in any way, 
and I'm sure that a lot of work is being done. You know, talk about, you know, very passionately you talk mangroves and biodiversity. What What is your vision going forward? What you would like to see 10 years down the line or even in, in a more longer run? You want the world, you're very passionate in the whole world. See, our biodiversity is so important. A lot of countries are, for example, Singapore 2030 plan. It's got a, they're putting parks in within, I think, five to 10 minutes of walking. So there are fantastic ideas coming around the world. What would you like to see if given a choice? Personally, I would like to see an end to mangrove loss, if we can make that happen, because they're still being lost at an extreme bad rate. You know, they're still losing a lot of our mangroves. And the mangroves that are being uh, restored oftentimes are restored badly. So they, they claim are increasing the mangrove area. It's actually degraded mangroves are not very healthy. And so I want to see us really work to create a healthy coastal wetland again, respecting the mangroves and the biodiversity they support, respecting the local communities. That would be my idea of success in a sense to stop further loss and to restore what was lost, at least part of what was lost if we can back to health. That would be important. And then to see the mangrove as one of the components of our planet that we need to you know, respect and restore and, and uh, live in harmony with. We have to learn to live in harmony with the planet. So that would be one of my goals is to try to, for the mangrove issue itself, to try to see the mangroves restored and conserved in a, in a positive way and get the local people involved in that process where they're given the rights to help manage and uh, give them some tenure rights to do that. And also to um, stop further degradation of these beautiful forest lands by uh, industries like shrimp farming or palm oil developments. It's just not right. And uh, we need those trees more than we need palm oil at this point more than we need the shrimp farms to export their products to the wealthy nations. We really need to respect the planet, respect the people on it. Yeah. That's pretty much my vision. And what sort of intervention do you think putting up videos in, in the kindergarten schools or, you know, K-12, that's when we start very young. Some of the interventions in schools or education or curriculum could be revised in order to make sure that, you know, by the time you're in youth, you have a foundation on ideology, particularly in this regard. Yes, it's very important mm -hmm. to talk with the younger generation and work with them. We have a what's called a, a mangrove art contest for children. And that's every year we do that. My wife, Monica, excuse me, she does that and uh, organizes that for the last 20 years. We get artwork from around the world. And they produce a calendar, which I have here. It's a beautiful calendar with artwork from everywhere. Uh, we have... This is the 2021 calendar. And has different artwork from around the world here from different countries. We're trying to work with kids. We have a curriculum too. I should mention the mangrove curriculum that Martin Keeley designed for us. And he lives in the Cayman Islands. And the curriculum actually uh, is being used in about 16 countries now. We're working right now on a, a, a mini curriculum. This is more pictures here, beautiful artwork. And so we're trying to get with the local people to understand better the mangroves and the importance of them, but also work with the, the, the younger generation to try to come up with their knowledge and their ability to see the benefits of mangroves. You know, want to help them understand what's going on. So these kinds of diagrams, you know, sometimes they're just pictures that kids do very simple, but oftentimes they express a lot of the local culture, which I think is very important. People that do this, they, they express the culture that they live under. So it helps the people locally. And, uh, they could talk to their parents then and, and get the parents interested in mangroves too. So we're trying to spread the word 
And uh, just recently, I've started working in Florida and Texas and Louisiana in the U.S., trying to get the mangroves in the U.S. protected more and people in the U.S. have better understanding them, too. So we work worldwide and uh, we're trying to do as much as we can with COVID. It's been hard because there's so much uh, we can do uh, remotely, but we would love to be able to visit more in person and be able to take people to the mangroves and show them how best to, to manage them better. So we're hoping they have that ability to soon again be able to travel to the mangrove areas and talk to the people locally. Yeah. Now, as a last question from the middle, yeah. do share any aha moment with the audience, any experience you cherish, and any message you want to give to the younger generation you did speak about. And if you think there's any skill set which people should develop to be in this industry, and it could be in engineering, it could be in public policy, it could be in a different kind, you know, what sort of technical skill sets is required if you want to, as an in international development, if you want to. I think people that study uh, environment could be very important to uh, better understand the environment they and teach other people about the environment, how to better manage it. We need coastal managers, you know, that can really plan long term in the future and better process the information that they have and not uh, not forget uh, skills that they have as far as managing the resource. Oftentimes in the past, local communities manage the resource sustainably. That's what, something very important to get back again. So I think sustainable management is very important. So those kinds of skills, just empathy for the environment, empathy for other life forms on the planet is very important. So that's really a good skill to develop as well. And to, to realize again, that human nature needs nature. We just need to come with that realization. We need nature. We can't live uh, remote from our connection to the planet. We, what feeds us, that gives us water, gives us air. We need that planet to survive. It's our, it's our life system. So I think skills that work on um, better understanding uh, how we can survive with the planet rather than without it. Not to go to Mars, you know, go to Mars if you want to, but not to leave the Earth a dead planet. <laughs> go to Mars with a healthy planet when we leave. And that way you're not just leaving something behind us, not going to su- survive. We want to survive. That's important. And I think it's uh, important to, for young people to feel they have a power to do something about these issues too. So try to empower the young generation. They're the ones, the future decision makers. We want to empower them with knowledge and with skills to be able to do that management. So that's what, what I hope will happen. And any aha moment do you think which brings back a smile? Anything, any, and really cherish? I mentioned to you the uh, man in Thailand when he mentioned that quote. Mm-hmm. So powerful for me just to hear him because he was speaking in a monotone and all of a sudden he changed his voice. That was an aha moment, if you want to call it that. You know, I, I realized that he had something to say that was beyond just a simple fisherman. And he knew so much more as a simple fisherman than he would as a scientist who was studying. I was at a conference in Brazil and a conference was talking about one of the themes was working with local communities to conserve the mangroves. And that was back in 2000, I think it was. And I looked around me and there was no, no local community members there. It was all scientists and students. And I stood up and said, I will not come to another conference like this unless you have local communities here. And the scientists turned to me from India. He turned to me and said, do you think they would understand each other, the scientists in the communities? I said, we have to learn to understand each other. <laughs> we really do need to learn that because that's something we, we just assume that local communities are ignorant. And they're not ignorant. They have a lot of knowledge. And I think people need to know that. The scientists are learning a lot of things from local communities about medicines and about uses of mangroves they never knew before. Oftentimes, local communities have names for all the local plants that are beyond the science names, you know, and they know more of the local uh, wildlife and so on than most people know. 
So we have to respect that uh, kind of knowledge and uh, understand that they hold the key in many ways. And we need to not assume that they don't hold any uh, value. But they hold a lot of value. We have to respect that. And then we have to, like I say, reconnect. And there are, in a sense, our means for reconnecting if we can talk with them and deal with them in a, in a respectful way. Yes. Even Mayan civilization was totally nature, pure agriculture. It was one of the foremost civilizations in the world. And uh, it was all about nature-based solutions. You know, they, they knew a lot more about what we know in many aspects and all more things yeah. to prove. People who have lived with nature, we really don't know. We think that science knows more, but they know a lot of things. How to work with nature? I think they are, uh, exp- they, I would say, scientists, natural scientists in terms of understanding. They have been able to adopt and move ahead in life, you know, still. Yeah. That's true. I agree. Uh, thank you for, you know, sharing time uh, and, you know, ch- and chatting about your work. Uh, about mangrove action project it's doing a fabulous job around the world there are a lot of countries and like you talked about art and you talked about a lot of other projects i actually recently played a video the curriculum which you are talking about for children really amazing sincerely appreciate your value add on this subject and i really wish you forward the best way forward and i hope the middle road could be a part of the vision and can thank you thank you thanks for talking with you <laughs>